Luke chapter 7, and I want to read verse 10 verses. It says, Now when he had handed all his sayings to the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And we heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. I simply titled this message this morning, He Loveth Our Nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you thank you again for your love and your mercies to us. Thank you for the blessings that you bestowed upon our nation in the past. And for the blessings you continue to bestow upon us in spite of our wickedness and our departure from thee. Father, I pray that you help us this morning as we look into the word of God. Help us, Father, to see what really is important. What makes a nation great? What makes a nation blessed of thee? Exalted in the earth. So, Lord, just encourage our hearts, challenge us, help us rejoice, and to be thankful for what you have done. Father, help us just be faithful and do our part in our service for thee and for our nation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, we certainly have a nation that has been blessed, live in a nation that has been blessed of God. Our nation has been a light, a beacon on a hill, if you will, to the world around us. And, you know, and I never, I, I didn't know what Chris mentioned this morning in the Sunday school class, but there's Fourth of July celebrations in other parts of the world for our independence. Because of the example and the help that we have been to other nations of the world. But we, we are seeing in our nation today, of course, a decline, a great decline, a, a decline of, of uh, our freedoms, a decline of moral values, uh, a decline of wealth even, a redistribution of wealth, an effort to redistribute wealth and all these things, a, really a, a push to destroy the very fabric of a nation. And one of the greatest things they're using is the destruction of the home. And, of course, race is another thing they're using. 
But here in this text, as we look at this passage this morning, here's a centurion. He's a Roman. He's living in the land of Israel. He's a, uh, uh, in, of course, in the Roman army. That's the army that is the, the nation of Israel is subject to. And, but here's a man, a centurion, that is said of him, he loveth our nation. The Jewish people said, he loveth our nation. And the thing that stands out, that the, reason, the reason they say he loveth our nation is, he hath built us a synagogue. You know, this man didn't just say he loved Israel. He demonstrated that he loved the nation of Israel. He loved God's people. I want to notice some things this morning about this man that we need to exemplify in our world, in our lives, that will be of more help to our nation than making money, paying taxes, and all that sort of thing. First of all, some characteristics. He valued life. He valued life. Now, I notice two things. First of all, he is concerned for his servant. Verses 2 and 3 says, And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Now, this was a servant. This wasn't one of his soldiers. It was just one of his servants. Uh, a Probably, maybe, a uh, evidently, because it talks about the house, you know, the, the, returning to the house, probably a household servant. And, you know, we would, we would be more inclined to say a household slave. So he wasn't, by most people's standard, considered really that important. He was a secondary, I hate to use that term, but in those days considered a secondary human being. But to the centurion, he was a life. He was a human being. He had value. And he was concerned for his servant. In Acts 17.25, we read part of this early this morning, neither is men worshipped with men's hands, so he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, hath made of one blood all nations of men for dwell on the face of the earth, hath determined the times before appointed the bounds of their habitations. You know, God, God's view of man is they are all created equal. We're all equal. Colossians 3.10 says, and hath put on the new man, speaking about uh, the, the body of Christ, put on the new man, which is renewed knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free. But Christ is all and in all. Those in bonds were just important to God or those who are free. This is important. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, says, These things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Paulus for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men about that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. We know that the church Corinth, there was these divisions. Some thought they were better than others. That's the bottom line. And they were puffed up. He said, you ought not to be puffed up. For who maketh thee to differ from another? 
Or what hast thou that thou dost not receive it? Now, if thou dost receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? You see, the, the centurion was not concerned about position of this man or the race of this man, but the well-being of a fellow human being. He cared about life. About life. He valued life. And we in America, life has become cheap. Easily ended. Abortion. Over a million abortions a year. Murders. Our cities are murder capitals of the world. Life is cheap. I read yesterday where some years ago a young lady wanted to go to, I think, a movie or something. She couldn't find anybody to keep her month-old child. So she put it down the laundry chute and left it to die. See, life is cheap. But see, God values life. And he's, this centurion, he valued life. He valued the life of his servant. Not only did he just value their lives, but he was concerned for their spiritual lives. Notice verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy of whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Now, he was concerned. You know, the synagogue was the place, was the meeting place where the Jews assembled for the reading and expanding of the scriptures, like uh, just like our church buildings. Uh, that was that was the synagogue. In fact, the word synagogue is the same Greek word as the word church most often in the New Testament. Same Greek word. Ecclesia it means assembly, and so he built. This Roman centurion, it seems, of his own money and his own finances, and, and they, I just read to, uh, within the last year or two that they've unearthed this thing, this, this, this uh, uh, synagogue in Capernaum, uh, identifying that, yes, there's, what, there's a certain centurion, I, and I can't remember, they gave his name, that who had built this synagogue for the Jews. For the purpose of the reading of the Scriptures and expanding of the Scriptures. And that's what synagogues were for. For example, go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. This is what they did at synagogues, just like we do in our churches. Luke 4, verse 16, And it came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, when he had been brought up, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. It was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened unto him. He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, It's not this. Joseph's son. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts, you know, Paul, his manner was, 
when he when he went unto them and three days reasoned out of them with them out of the scriptures. Of course, he went in the synagogue. Acts eighteen four tells us he went in the synagogue and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath day, and persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So here's here's a man. He's not just concerned about the physical well-being of his servant, he's concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people around him. He built a synagogue. It'd be like saying he started a church or he built a church building. See, he seemed to understand what does a man profit if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 49, verse 6 through 8, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give it to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. You know, money can buy a lot of things, but money cannot buy health. It cannot buy life. I remember there was a man in Maine, and he got some kind of problem with his feet, and it got so bad that he couldn't walk. He told a friend of mine that he said, I I thought money could buy almost anything, but it can't. There was nothing they could do for him. So here was a man. He valued life. Not just temporal life, but he valued eternal life. You know, here's here's a guy that's that's in the military, but his focus or his interests, special interest is is in building a synagogue. It shows you where his priority was. Secondly. He was responsible. He was a responsible man. Now, I notice two things there. Here, first of all, he was responsible to those over him. Notice verses six through eight. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man set under authority. He was responsible. He understood that he was a man set under authority. Though he was a centurion... He understood that he had authorities over him in rank, of course, in the military. But further than that, though he is an exalted rank among men, he realizes that God's authority is greater than his and that he is under God's authority. That's why he said, Neither thought I worthy to come unto thee. What he's really saying to Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is you and I are not on the same level. You are up here. I am down here. I am under you. 
See, the problem we have with our country, with many people, is they want to be on the same level with God. And what they do is make a God of their own liking. Matthew Henry said this, quote, He illustrates this faith of his by comparison taken from his own profession. And is confident that Christ can as easily command away the distemper as he can command any of his soldiers, and can as easily send an angel with commission to cure his servant of his as he can send a soldier on an errand. Christ has the sovereign power over all the creatures and all their actions, and can change the course of nature as he pleases, can rectify its disorders, repair its decays in human bodies, for all power is given unto him, unquote. See, this man understood that he is responsible, that I am responsible to God. I am accountable to him. I am under his authority. You know, true faith acknowledges that the Lord has power over all creation and over all trials, circumstances, and that we are responsible and accountable to him for our actions. You know, this God whom we serve can plague one part of a country and not another. He can blind a violent mob at Sodom can divide seas, stop rivers, feed millions with angels' food for 40 years, he can make a donkey talk, a whale to swallow and spit up a man, a raven to feed a man, shut the mouths of lions, and put a coin in a fish's mouth to pay his taxes and Peter's, and deliver his chosen from the fiery furnace, slaughter 185,000 Syrians in one night, and make the mightiest monarch on earth insane for a time until he realizes that the Most High ruleth in the affairs of men. And he also has the keys of death and of hell. And he can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. You know, Ecclesiastes 8.4 says this, Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? You know, how dare a man say to God, What? doest thou after all he is a king you know Jesus said in Matthew 28 18 all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth and in 1st Timothy chapter 6 speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1st Timothy chapter 6 verse 14 through 16 Paul wrote John Timothy said that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable Unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. We live in a nation now of people who profess to know God, yet are more concerned about the economy and being relevant with the world, accepted by the world, and 
and the things the government will provide than being submitted to God and his absolute truth. Erwin Lutzer, in his book titled, When a Nation Forgets God, quoted from William Shire, his book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Right, and this is what he said. Quote, it would be misleading to give the impression that the persecution of Protestants and Catholics by Nazi state toward German people asunder or even greatly aroused the vast majority of them. It did not. A people who had so lightly given up their political and cultural and economic freedoms were not, except for a relatively few, going to die or even risk imprisonment to preserve freedom of worship. What really aroused the Germans in the 30s were the glittering successes of Hitler in providing jobs, creating prosperity, restoring Germany's military might, and moving from one triumph to another in his foreign policy. Not money Germans lost sleep over the arrest of a few thousand pastors and priests or over the quarreling of the various Protestant sects, or even fewer paused to reflect that under the leadership of Rosenberg, Mormon, and Himmler, who were backed by Hitler, the Nazi regime intended to eventually destroy Christianity in Germany if it could and substitute the old paganism of the early Germanic gods and the new paganism of Nazi extremists. As Bormann, one of the men closest to Hitler, said publicly in 1941, National Socialism and Christianity are irreconcilable, unquote. And then he goes on to say, this is, that was a quotation from a book. Lutzer says, quote, so there you have it. The majority of the people, including the Christians in the Third Reich, no longer believe that Christianity was worth suffering for much less dying for. They were willing to substitute mind camp for the Bible in exchange for jobs and the greater glory of Germany. Yet those who saved their lives lost them. And those who lost their lives saved them. Mark Dever, Dever, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. He wrote a book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. These, these are not independent Baptist writers, but some things here they have to say are very pertinent. He said this, I fear for our nation. Quote, I fear for our nation. There's a popular suspicion abroad that the Christian gospel, as expressed by evangelicals, is a threat to our freedom. Go and study the history of Germany and note what kind of Christianity reigned for a century before Nazism. It was not a Christianity of absolute truths from an absolute God. It was a compromising, moralizing, relativizing kind of Christian offer, Christianity offering a gospel that could be shaped by human hands and human thoughts. What we should really fear as a nation, but primarily as individuals, are the consequences of ignoring the gospel. For the day will come for each one of us when our time for responding is over, when our time for evaluating the claims of God is done, when his time of evaluating us finally comes. Unquote. You see, we live in a nation that's full of professing Christians. 
And yet their lives don't bear fruit of Bible Christianity. It's a God of their own making. It's a God of without moral absolutes. It's a God of relativism that just fit in with society. Seeker-friendly. You ask what they want, and so you give them what they want. Jeremiah 48.10 says, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. That kind of Christianity is cursed. There's only one, God, one thing God can do with compromise, and that is judge it. Judge it. David was judged for his compromise with Bathsheba. Jehoshaphat, one of the greatest kings ever has, was greatly judged for his compromise with Ahab. And on and on we go. So we, we have a Christianity that has given itself over to scientists, bureaucrats, and the Supreme Court all playing God. An article entitled from conservativesociety.org The title is, The Supreme Court Decision Vacating California's Church Attendance Regulations is Not a Victory and Should Terrify Us. That's the title of the article. And this was in February, I think, yeah. It says, For more than eight months now, the Supreme Court has declined to intervene in a case in which a California church has challenged the state's COVID-19-inspired stay-at-home orders. Finally, the court has weighed in on the case and decides somewhat, somewhat in the church's favor. On Friday... February 5th, the Supreme Court decided to allow California churches to continue holding indoor worship services. Some conservatives are hailing this as a victory, but a closer examination of the ruling reveals that in many ways it is anything but. Since the court was divided in its overall ruling, the final result will be that churches will only be able to limit attendance at 25% capacity. The ban issued by the state of California on singing and chanting will also stand. So they're not allowed, still not allowed to sing. That's bad enough as it is, but things get worse when you examine the specific comments of some of the justices. Justice Alina Kagan, in a six-page opinion that was affirmed by both Justice Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor, stated that the Supreme Court justices are, quote, not scientists, unquote, and do not know much about public health policy. She took this fact to imply that, therefore, justices must surrender their authority over to a shoddy cadre of unelected and unaccountable technocrats. She asked rhetorically, quote, Is it that the court does not believe the science, or does it think even the best science must give way, unquote? A statement like that is sheer mysticism. Scientists, whatever the narrow expertise may be in their chosen fields, are not competent to decide on many questions that go into the organization of a society. There may be competent, they may be competent to give the public an accounting of the risks involved in something like a pandemic, but they are not competent to decide whether those risks are worth taking or not. That is for officials like judges or elected representatives, and especially for the people themselves to decide. As David Hume and countless philosophers since him have pointed out questions of fact, which science is meant to answer are completely distinct from questions of value. Questions of value are about what sorts of things we should do, what we, obligations do we to do, what is worth pursuing in life, what is worth living for, and so on. Science has no authority whatsoever to answer questions like these, 
But these are precisely the sorts of questions that must be answered whenever we make decisions about public policies. Kagan's comments are horrifying precisely because they surrender the authority to answer such questions and make such decisions to a people who are not equipped to do so. Scientists, whatever value and importance to society may be, simply have no right to tell anyone how to live. Unquote. You see, we got a bunch of scientists and bureaucrats that think they can tell us that, that, you know, that have exalted themselves as God and can tell us what we can and can't do in our own life. You see, scientists are taking the place of God. Government is taking the place of God. CLA, in its, its the latest uh, update, said this about the Supreme Court's uh, decisions concerning churches this, from, from uh, January to June, and they, they gave two takeaways. One of them was this. Quote, The state can impose restrictions on churches as long as they treat all secular, similar secular organizations the same. Unquote. So, the state then has the right to, to uh, set restrictions on churches according to the Supreme Court ruling. The state. Well, I don't know. But my state constitution, my copy says this. Under religious liberty, Article 13 or uh, number 13 of the Declaration of Rights. All persons have a natural and inalienable right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences. And no human authority shall, in any case whatsoever, control or interfere with the rights of conscience. Unquote. And I know that our U.S. Constitution tells us that the government shall not interfere. But here we have it. Scientists, government officials, even the Supreme Court, are acting like God. They're taking the place of God. sad thing is, many are going along with it. Many churches. Where's the outcry? Where is the outcry? No, the Bible still says in Romans fourteen twelve. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Hebrews nine twenty seven says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this is judgment. Proverbs 14.34 still says, Righteousness exalteth a nation. Sin is reproach unto many people. Secondly, see, you know, he, had, he was responsible to those over him. He, had, he, had, he also had a responsibility to those under him. Notice chapter 7 of Luke again, verse 8. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one, unto one, Go, and he goeth. To another, Come, and he cometh. To my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. So he had, of course, he was in a leadership role. And he's declaring here that I have a responsibility to those that are under me. To properly lead them. And command them. So I say to this servant, Do this, and he doeth it. To another, Go, and he goeth. 
another come and he cometh. In other words, he took responsibility for those that were under him. You know, one of the greatest problems in our nation is irresponsibility. Probably our greatest social problem is fatherlessness. Fathers that will not take responsibility for their children. A father that will not take responsibility for his children is worthless. He is worthless. It's destroying our homes. It's teaching the younger generation to be leeches, thinking the world owes them a living, that the world ought to take care of them. And of course, this is encouraged by the progressives and the left, and what it does is increases the size of government, the welfare rolls, and and enslaves all of us. Which is what the left wants. Because it leads right to communism. Encouraged by progressives and feminism. They call it equality. It's not a matter of equality of a father and mother. It's a matter of roles established by God for the good of society. See, therefore, it is a rejection of God's authority. It's a rejection of a responsibility for an almighty God. It is a proud and haughty spirit against God. And this is what we have. This is, this is what this is. A pride and haughty spirit against God. Not seeing their responsibility before God. You know, our nation was set up upon the principles that we are a nation under God. Under God. And that judges have roles under God. Not control people, but under God. For the good of people. A republic is supposed to be by the people and for the people. You know, well, they don't talk much about the republic anymore. You know what they talk about? The democracy. You know what a democracy is? The rule of the masses. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing in our nation. The rule of the masses. Those that amass themselves and riot and burn and loot and everything. That, that, those are the who, who is really ruling. And then they get arrested, then they let them go. See, we have forgotten, many have forgotten their role in government. They're supposed to lead. Yeah, we, let, we let out those that are arrested in, in, in protests and riots and burn and loot. If you'd entered the Capitol building, you may be sitting in jail rotting and no, no trial and no, no, no bond or anything. No bail. It's called political prisoners. It's all to create a welfare state that is dependent on the government whereby we are enslaved. You know what God calls it? Stealing. It's to make government. You know, one of the things the founders wanted was a limited government. And when government understands its role under God, 
You know what it does? It limits itself. Really, a government is just to provide protection. That's all. It's not to provide health care, free education, free lunch, free housing. That's not the responsibility of government. You know, Genesis 3.19 still says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return on the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Ephesians 4.28 Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, that they may have give to him that needeth. And of course, the classic passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses <coughs> 5 through 10, where it says, And the Lord direct your hearts unto the love of God and unto the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after tradition which ye received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to be- follow us, for behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we command you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And that was grounds for church discipline. First Timothy 5.8 says, But if any provide not for his house, for his, uh, if any provide not for his own, especially they of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. See, we've, we've got a bunch of people, many of them profess to know God. They're proud. They don't want to be responsible for their actions. They want to be able to do what they want, get what they want, without consequences. The world owes me. You need to take care of me. No. You know, this centurion was a man who understood his responsibilities before God and under God. You know, the greatest thing we can give to our nation is to value human life. You know, if you value human life, you're going to value that soul and where it's going to spend eternity. Not just its well-being, that it's fed and clothed. You, know, you can feed them and clothe them and they die and go to hell. What good is that? What have you profited? But they're an eternal soul. That is our responsibility before God as Christians. That is... You know, if you wanted to boil it down, you might say that is what it is to be righteous. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
That is what made America great. And our departure from that is why America is declining. Probably most of you are familiar with the Lexus de Tocqueville, the famous French statesman, historian, philosopher. He's credited with making the statement that America is great because America is good. But he also said this about America, and he came and he toured America, and he said this, quote, Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more I perceived that the great political consequences revolving from this new state of things, in other words, this religious liberty. In France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freemen marching in opposite directions. By the way, Catholicism is no friend to liberty. Islam is no friend to liberty. They're doctrines of devils. They will enslave you. And that's what he's saying here, the opposite direction. But in America, you see, Bible Christianity and Baptists are the friends of liberty. You know, that first charter on American soil in Rhode Island was the first in history to grant freedom of religion, freedom in religious concerns, written by the pen of John Clark, pastor, the First Baptist Church in Newport. It was new. He called it an experiment, this lively experiment. I believe that's what our Declaration of Independence is based upon. He said, religion in America, it goes on here, quote, religion in America must be regarded as the foremost of the political institutions of that country. Can you imagine staying up today? By the way, they are saying it, but in a different way. They say, are, are saying that religion is political. The IRS just denied tax exemption to a religious group in Texas because they said the Bible teaches political... Let me, let, me, let me get the wording right here. Because the Bible, they are teaching... Okay, IRS, this is the title. This is the Washington Examiner... The title of the article is, this is June 20th, 2021, by Michael Lee. Quote, IRS denies tax-exempt status to Christian nonprofit group because Bible teachings are typically affiliated with the Republican Party. Unquote. So they're considering Christians political activists. You see, de Tocqueville says it was the religion of America at the time of the founding of our nation that it was the foremost of political institutions. You know the reason we didn't have kings and the reason we didn't have dictators ruling over us is because the largest religious group of people in America at the time of the Revolutionary War opposed that thing. 
They are the group that said all men are created equal. It was a Baptist. Let me read on. Religion in America must be regarded as foremost of political institutions of that country, for it does not impart a taste for freedom. For if it does not impart a taste for freedom, it facilitates the use of it. Indeed, it is in this, this same spirit of view that the inhabitants of the United States themselves look upon religious belief. I do not know whether all Americans have a sincere faith in their religion, for who can search the human heart? But I am certain that they hold it to be an indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. This opinion is not peculiar to a class of citizens or a party, but it belongs to the whole nation and every rank of society. So there were people in every class in America that believed these things. Every part of society. He goes on. Uh, I quote, I do not question the great austerity of manners that is observable in the United States. In other words, the way which they live arises in the first instance from religious faith. Its influence over the mind of women is supreme, and women are the protectors of morals. You know, feminism has been one of the greatest destroyer of morals in our country. Feminism. There is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is more respected than in America or where conjugal happiness is more highly and worthily appreciated. Unquote. Now marriage is almost looked down upon, frowned upon. Ecclesiastes 8.12 says this, Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, his days be prolonged. Yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. See, this centurion was humble enough to understand his need to submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by submitting to his authority, he was responsible to carry out his duties which are God-given. To have concern for the well-being, not only of their physical, but their spiritual well-being of those under his authority. And he loved their nation. That's what it is to love a nation. Be responsible. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14. Solomon, as he concludes the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this. Let's clear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You want to have a great impact on your nation? the greatest impact? Do you love your nation? Then live for God. Submit to God. And love your fellow man. Have compassion toward them as souls that are perishing without hope, without God. Be responsible. Might the Lord help us.